Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Jerry Parker, one of the original turtle traders and founder of Chesapeake Capital Corporation, to discuss his use and belief in trend following and generating consistent and uncorrelated returns over time. We talked to Jerry about his specific trend following system, why the outlook for trend following looks favorable going forward, how trend following can help manage behavioral risk with investors, and much more. And oh, we're joined by a special guest right around the 14-minute mark. Hopefully you stay around to see who joins us during the podcast. You may be surprised. As always, thank you for checking out Excess Returns. Jack and I always appreciate it. Please enjoy this discussion with Chesapeake Capital's Jerry Parker. Just one more thing before we start. Excess Returns has been growing a lot recently, and all of that is a result of the support from our loyal listeners and viewers. We just want to thank everyone who's taken the time to listen to us and for supporting us and allowing us to continue to reach more and more investors. If you have a minute to do it, we would ask one favor of you. If you have benefited from the podcast and could take the time to subscribe on YouTube or your preferred audio platform and to write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Both are a big part of expanding the podcast and will allow us to continue to get great guests. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Hi, Jerry. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. To start off, I wanted to congratulate you on the solid performance this year. I was doing a little due diligence and looking at your strategies and preparation for this interview and your uh, portfolios have certainly done a nice job of be- being highly uncorrelated with the market. Yeah, it's been really uh, fun. This this uh, It's almost three years now where the markets have just been so good, so many trends and commodities, uh, a lot of the currencies this year and the interest rates. And it's just been fantastic. I can't think of a better period, honestly, the past three years. And so this year, entire managed futures has done really well. Yeah, very nice. We, you know, the overarching topic today is going to be about how you go about producing these uncorrelated returns using trend following futures and the other methods that you spent really the last 35 years, I think, studying and developing and, and refining. Um, but before we, we get into, I think, what the meat of the dis- dis- discussion is going to be, I wanted to um, start by um, asking you and having you explain how you started in the business and the interesting story of working with Richard Dennis and how you got involved with the Turtle Traders. I got involved in uh, the fall of 1983 by seeing an ad that uh, Rich ran in the Wall Street Journal that he wanted to hire traders and teach them how to trade and then give them money to manage. I mean, it was just like a dream come true. I didn't really know anything about being a CTA. I had done a lot of studying on uh, trend following and I heard about trend following and I read about it. I was in my early 20s and I thought, oh yeah, this is really good stuff. I really loved it. I fell in love with it. And it was just sort of um, luck to see the ad in the Wall Street Journal, send my resume in and get an interview and get the job. And it was just all all this good fortune, you know, I could never have expected. Um, but I was somewhat prepared and ready because I had really made it my hobby uh, to learn as much as I could about trading and trend following in particular. And luckily, that was the strategy that they used. And that's what they ended up teaching us. So you were out of college. 
you responded to this ad. It was basically your first real job, would you say? No, I was working in public accounting. <clears throat> so I graduated from UVA with a degree in accounting, but I definitely wanted to stop doing that, you know, and do something more fun. And I thought that trading and, and would be a great idea <clears throat> for me. I just uh, needed to figure out, you know, what was going to be my first trading job. And um, so I heard about this, you know, saw the ad. And then whenever you sent your resume in, um, they sent out a true false test. So there was a thousand applicants in 1983. And so we all got uh, a true false test. And um, I would take this test around with me on the audits, you know, for a week or two, I had it like maybe two weeks to before I had to send it back in. And then on my spare time, I would like read these questions to my friends and ask them their opinions and try to figure out how I could, you know, do a good job on this test. And so um, when I got the interview, and I went to Chicago uh, from Richmond, Virginia. I, um, they told me that I had the highest score out of a thousand people on this test. So that was kind of my claim to fame and probably the reason I got hired because they wanted to hire at least a few people who may, maybe didn't have too much going on in their resume except they had done well on this test. So um, it wasn't a precursor of any sort of idea of success, but it was, that's, that's how I maximized my opportunity. What, what was on the test? I mean, was it investing related stuff? Was it math? What did they have on there? It was a combination of trend following, um, psychology. Um, like one of the questions was it takes true or false. It takes money to make money. And so I had a feeling that they were sort of contrarian minded. And I obviously answered false to that question. And the obvious answer was true. So I answered false. And so there was a lot of that going on, you know, um, just sort of thinking about how they may f look at the markets and look at the world in a different way. What was the training regimen like? Like, just explain the process, how long training was it, when you actually got to make your first trade, what, what was going on there? So, uh, you know, Rich and Bill Eckhart, they were really genius people. They still are genius people. And they gave us a great, uh, I think it was three week course at the Union League Club Hotel in Chicago. You know, the only hotel in Chicago, I think that required a coat and tie. And Rich was just like not into coats and ties. So that was kind of the funny story is that how did his secretary or scheduler set this up at the only hotel where he had to wear a coat and tie. So, uh, but yeah, we would just go down there, um, you know, for those three weeks, um, and they would give us a training on trend and statistics and um, behavioral economics stuff, you know, contrary opinion and thinking differently and how the markets worked and how trend worked. Um, they were very, you know, Bill is like a genius math guy and they had uh, quite a bit of access to computers and back testing. And this was the early 80s. And so they had done a lot of research and they knew uh, what worked and they were, you know, just feeding us daily um, all these good ideas and things we could have never learned in maybe any other environment. And um, the big untold story of the turtles, in my opinion, is uh, just how smart those guys were. And um, we were just overwhelmed. We, you know, I thought I knew human beings who were smart and I had just never run across people 
uh, like this before. I mean, that is the one thing Jack and I were talking about before. We were we were wondering about the data because, like you said, this was the mid '80s. I guess you had access. You, they had the computers. They had the data. They had the back testing ability. But that was, uh, um, you know, like now, obviously, everyone has access to that. But you guys had probably the edge to some extent was. Um, due to the fact that the technology maybe that they had was superior than what other people had. I think they combined that with a, a, a lot of skepticism towards backtesting. So you had amazing capabilities and knowledge from the backtest combined with, you can't really believe what this computer says all the time and you need to take it with a grain of salt. And um, for God's sakes, don't try to come up with any models and rules that are so precise as if you've uncovered this holy grail. So we were, and we were equipped not only to handle the markets, um, you know, in the 80s, 84, 85 in that area, but we were kind of, the whole point was we're equipping you for the rest of your life. The parameters may change, the specific entry and exit ideas may change, but you want to be equipped to know how to evolve properly um, with the markets. And this is not something that's we're planning on, you know, it'll work for a while, then you'll be totally incapable of figuring out. So it was a complete, uh, you know, in three weeks, that's pretty amazing. Were you confident when you started? I mean, when you, you came out of this program and you're now handling, well, I don't know, did they, you know, seed you immediately with, with capital? Yeah, so like uh, like three weeks later, January the second, we started with a million dollars each. So right out of the bat, sink or swim. You know that we were in a different office. There was very little communication. Here's your million dollars, and you better you better follow our rules, and you're fully equipped, and you better not lose too much money. <laughs> you must have been nervous hitting that first trade button. I would imagine, <laughs> or maybe not. <clears throat> No, no, I was extremely nervous. And uh, I mean, these were also the nicest people I had ever met as well. So after like a week of trading, uh, Rich, I think, was in Florida and he called us all on the phone. So we were all 12 of us were in this one room and all the phones started ringing, you know, and Rich would speak to everybody for like a couple of minutes. And so he gets to me and he's like, uh, OK, how do you think it went? And I was like, well, I think it went OK. And he goes, well, how many trades did you do? I said, I probably did like 10. And he said, well, how many do you think you should have done? I said, probably like 20. And he was like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Just don't let it bother you. Don't get nervous. Just do the trades. It's not that big of a deal. So he should have like yelled at me because that was the major rule. Like the first and most important rule is do the trades. You cannot miss a trade. Follow these rules. And so right out of the gate, I'm too afraid and timid to do the darn trade. <laughs> but we got a lot of encouragement. It was this pretend atmosphere where we were asked just to follow the rules and do it, follow the system the way we've taught you. And if you lose money, don't really worry about it um, if you're doing the right things. But if you start making money and, and not following the rules, then we are going to get pretty uptight. So it was this pretend environment for traders to um, nothing but positive feedback, regardless of performance. And then at one point, we all had a big drawdown, and lost a lot of money in the first year, and they ended up just giving us more money to manage. So 
not something you should ever expect from real clients in the real world. You mentioned the training program, but you also mentioned the true false test. And that sort of gets at a balance, I think, between, you know, can good traders be taught? So, you know, on one side, they're probably trying to figure out psychologically, are you equipped to do it? And on the other hand, they're actually training you to do it. So what do you think about that? I mean, do you think good traders, do you think you have to have that psychological profile in place to be able to be a good trader? Or do you think anybody can be taught to be a good trader? Well, I think anybody can be taught the rules and then you have to submit yourself to following rules, which I think um, is very difficult to do. Um, you know, Rich would say, I can put my rules in the, on the front page of the paper and I don't think anybody would really follow them. And I think that's still true today. Maybe for a different reason than he meant it. I think today people would argue and say, no, 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 you're not only am I going to follow your rules, I think your rules are bad and my rules are better. And they, they may have 15 minutes worth of experience, but people, young people tell me all the time that my rules are no good. So, but, and, and they, they know better than me. So it's, that's kind of disappointing. Yes, it sort of gets back to that Mike Tyson quote about everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And, you know, it's it's great to have rules, but when the market's going against you, like the ability to continue to follow those rules is like a superpower for investors because, you know, most people can't do that. Most people start questioning them and, you know, doing different things when the market's going, not going their way. It's a, it's a big superpower to have those rules and to follow them. And the one kind of unfortunate difference between uh, this and boxing is that it goes way more than 15 rounds and you could go years and years doing uh, some of the wrong things and you and just gaining confidence all the time with your performance and yet all of a sudden all of your problems and the weaknesses of your system they will pop up and you will be very disappointed i, I see we're being joined by your friend on your shoulder <laughs> that's a first for us i'll be honest with you <laughs> I hear that a lot. She's very jealous and with my, she wants me to pay attention to her, but. Is she a trend follower as well? <laughs> no, when I first started doing podcasts, people would, uh, I was very nervous about the bird and they make so much noise. And then after a while, people would get very nervous if they didn't hear the birds. Are the birds okay? <laughs> and we really, miss, we really miss the birds. So once again, I've got to have uh, something to remember me by. And this, this is Petey. What Rich, it sounded like he was very much, what was important to him was following the process. The outcome, you know, some trades you're going to win, some trades you're going to lose, but he was encouraging regardless of winning or losing in those trades, as long as the process was followed. And I think over time in investing, you know, the following the a process is very important, whether you're a trend follower or, or you have some other investment process that you follow or strategy you follow. That's right. I think that one of the major problems that people have with trend following is that's what it promises. And, and you know, you can't really um, guarantee that it's going to be successful, regardless of your back test or regardless of how long you have been successful. But uh, it only assumes following these systems, you know, after you've looked at this long term back test, it only says basically that if you do this for the rest of your life every day you do all these trades like you're supposed to that over time over a long period of time you you know you may see returns similar to what you've seen in history but people are not interested in over time they're interested in today and the trades i have on right now 
And it could just totally mishandle you know, th these trades this week, this month, this year, and make you look pretty silly, giving back way too much profit or um, having choppy periods where you don't make any money, all you do is lose. So it's the promise that if you continue to do this for the rest of your life, you'll be okay. But that is really not on our mind. We're fighting our human nature all the time um, because clients are complaining and your peers are beating you. Oh, that's the worst thing ever. Your peers who are doing different things or maybe inferior things, they're really having a, a much better time of it than uh, I am. Many investors are sort of used to the return profiles of stocks, sort of like a 60-40 portfolio. You know, they're used to getting their return over time, but it being very inconsistent, you know, having big up years and big down years. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about like, what does the return profile of trend following look like? And how, how does it compare to something like a 60-40 portfolio or like an all equity portfolio? Well, I mean, I think um, before um, the great financial crisis and the Fed zero interest rate policy, that, you know, back in the day when I first started in the late 80s and with my company, Chesapeake, we would uh, have our marketing material would show that um, we had, we made more money than the S&P in 60-40 and we had less volatility and we were more consistent uh, with smaller drawdowns. <clears throat> so it was only during that uh, recent period where we really lost out to the stock market and the more, the more diversification was kind of penalized and stocks was basically the only great uh, moves, moves, you know, going. So hopefully we'll get back to that because we trade so many markets and we have a systematic approach. And like 2020, the, the big lesson for me in 2020 is just reminding everyone about how important shorts are. So much of what we see in traditional management and 60-40, it just immediately and only assumes longs. And there you have it. Okay, what are you going to do now? And here's, here's, what you, here's your tools, but you have to only be long. Well, you know, it's not going to work sometimes because you're going to need to be short bonds and short gold. And you have to have some commodities in there and um, some short, some currencies. And so with that in our arsenal, with all those markets and all those advantages, we should uh, almost consistently outperform um, stocks or 60-40. And maybe we'll start doing that like we have the past three years. But I don't know, the, gov the Fed and who knows what's going to happen. And maybe the anomaly was uh, prior to that where we our performance was so good. But we'll see. I can't really predict what's going to happen. You mentioned earlier that this last few years has been really good for trend following. And I'm wondering, like, what does a good period for trend following look like? I mean, is, is it a period where trends are persisting for really long periods of time and are kind of consistent? I mean, is that what a, is that what a good period looks like? I think so. And um, like I said, part of the issue recently, you know, before 2020 was um, the only thing trending was stocks. So two, three quarters of our portfolio was sort of dead in the water. Commodities really hadn't done anything in a long time. Uh, the currencies either. Bonds were, were going up, but getting closer and closer to zero or negative interest rates. And so CTAs would not um, have a, a, a big allocation to equities. And then I think um, one of the major, in my opinion, problems with managed futures is reluctance to include single stocks. And so you even if they're going to trade stocks and have stocks in the portfolio, the they only did it with indices, which are not going to be as profitable as single names, trading the single names. And so 
that still is something that most CTAs haven't embraced in their managed futures trend following program is, um, you know, adding a lot of single stocks in there to give them more diversification, more chance for these outlier moves, because that's what trend following is all about is, you know, hitting the big, huge moves. You mentioned the Fed. Do you think what the Fed did in terms of keeping interest rates artificially low? I mean, was that a significant headwind for trend following strategies? And do you think now that maybe we're going to see maybe more normal interest rates? Is that more of a positive going forward? Probably. I don't really know. I, you know, people, um, AQR and others wrote papers as to why CTAs underperformed so much and um, over that period. And the answer was the lack of big trends. Obviously, you know, you have this methodology that's totally dependent upon big moves and taking small losses and hopefully, hopefully that the big moves pay for the small losses. And we just didn't get them in those, um, except in the equity markets. But I don't know if I could blame it on the Fed or I don't know if we've turned the corner. I know for me personally, I have added more equities and more stocks, single stocks to my portfolio. So if stocks become the only game in town and the only big trends again, I'm going to not perform as bad as I did. I'm not saying I'm do as well as I would like, but at least I'll have a meaningful allocation to equities and those particular trends. Which futures markets do you trade? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of futures markets that are out there. So, I mean, do you try to just cover the major asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities, that type of thing? I do. I trade um, as many currencies as, as I can find in commodities as well. Lots and lots of uh, interest rates, e ETFs. I branched off into not just uh, interest rate futures, but interest rate, uh, interest rate ETFs uh, that don't have um, a future associated with them like muni bonds and high yield and tips, mortgage backs and things like that. So that's my big um, goal is to find as many markets as I possibly can and to trend follow. So I'll have um, a, just a gigantic portfolio and I'm taking all of these really small bets, but still five or 10% of my trades will um, be responsible for all of the profit in any given year. This is something I've sort of struggled with myself. And we talked to Andrew Beer about this, this idea between simplicity and complexity. So, you know, on one hand, you, you'd probably want to access as many futures markets as you can, you know, to try to find things that might be profitable for you. But on the other hand, you maybe like you can get the major moves with like a, a less, less markets, you know, you're accessing. How do you think about sort of that balance between complexity and simplicity? Well, people are going to think that I told you to ask me this question because this is my favorite question. And it's really... Um, in my opinion, uh, I have people disagree with me, but it's the difference between managed futures and trend following. And in a nutshell, uh, trend following, managed, managed futures CTAs don't practice enough trend following for me. You know, it's, it's trend following, but it's, it's a different kind of trend following that they have come up with most of the larger firms. And so, you know, the cliche is uh, take small losses and let profits run. So everyone takes small losses, but they don't really let the profits run. And so if a market gets too volatile or the correlations get to be too high, then they start scaling back these positions. And so they're not really allowing the portfolio to be dominated by an outlier trade as much as a sector, a big sector move. So this makes it very easy for Andrew uh, to replicate 20 CTAs 
because they're not really making a lot more money on the gilt and the yen and the um, British pound like me because these other managed futures type CTAs have scaled those trades back to make them less volatile and less scary. And I'm just letting that thing run like an old-fashioned trend following. And it's it was a small trade when I put it on, but now the volatility is so large and the moves are so huge that it's now it's become kind of a major impact on my portfolio. And so this old-school trend following is just not practiced by uh, many of the managed futures CTAs, the large CTAs. So I came up with this idea. Well, that's managed futures. And then I want to be a trend follower. And they're they're much different. This sort of gets at my, my next question, because I, I want to ask, like, how do you think about weighting things within your portfolio? So in other words, if, if something is running, you know, how, how do you think about like when it's too much? I mean, do you think about if you've got your stocks, bonds, currencies and commodities, do you think about like each one of them should sort of be like 25% of your portfolio and you don't want them to get bigger than that? Or how do you think about that process? I think about it in those terms. That's that's a fine way of looking at it. But only uh, when you set up the portfolios, maybe of those four sectors, you know, you have your initial uh, weights for your trades to be you know, 25% each, and then you split that up uh, depending upon how many markets are in that sector. And so when you first put the trade on, you are going to size it based upon uh, inversely to the volatility. So each trade bet is kind of the same bet. You're going to risk the same dollar amount. You're giving, you're putting on the same kind of position. You need to put on, uh, you know, 50 S&P to equal 5,000 euro dollars. But based upon the contract size and the volatility, it's it's an equal bet. And so um, I want to I use that money management scheme to normalize my losses. But then once the trade turns into a, a trade and a profit, let's say, I just let it go. And I don't try to manage that anymore. The trades all start out with the same risk and the same expectation. But as they get going, you know, these handful of five or 10% of your trades per year are going to just be outrageously large and dominate the portfolio. And so this makes people uncomfortable. And, and this is why, you know, clients like it when the larger CTAs say, hey, let me scale that back some, let me vol manage and correlation manage and make it smoother and easier and more palatable type of trend following. And I think that's how it got really popular. And that's why those guys have a lot of money under management. It's just a bit different from trend following. And it has its pros and cons that don't really get talked about. But it's not, you know, just just a, if it was just all one way, I would do the same thing. But I, I sort of chose to do something different. So you won't, no matter how big a position gets, you won't scale out of it. You'll just wait until the trend reverses and then you'll close out the position? Right. I mean, I have four different uh, trend following systems. And I'll sort of scale out if on each one of those, but I won't just reduce the trade based upon its uh, increased volatility or its increased correlation to the portfolio or the other markets in its sector. I'll just hold on forever and it will get very uncomfortable, but it just has a tendency overall to make more money. It seems like there's a lot of different indicators you could use to define a trend. I mean, how do you think about defining, you know, whether something's in a positive trend? I mean, is, is it a composite of a lot of different indicators you use? No, no, it's one indicator. You know, like I said, I have four different systems and I usually the breakouts. So 
I just uh, look at different breakouts, you know, 100 day, 120 day, 150 day, something like that. And I do breakouts on the entry and the exit, also have a stop loss. I think um, it's not it's not crazy important to um, have the do a back test and over optimize to figure out exactly where these parameters should be. Just trading a broad range of parameters um, is is a good idea. You know, not too short term, not too long term, and then. Um, but the main thing that having all of these uh, this strategy that has its rules and has its parameters it just forces you into being very consistent and disciplined and handling trades the same way each time that's really the the secret is are you going to handle these trades the same way every time for the rest of your life and if you do uh, you know you'll get your fair share of the profits and you'll eliminate a lot of the randomness of discretion how do you think about the process of deciding, you know, one of the things we always struggle with with quantitative strategies is, you know, you've got your process and, you know, you want to follow your process for the long term, but, you know, sometimes over time things do change in the market and you have to sort of change your process. And I'm wondering, you know, a lot of people have said like in the wake of 2020, the market has maybe sped up some. And so I'm wondering if maybe you would think like shorter term indicators would be more important now than longer term indicators. But how do you think about that process of, of maybe evolving the strategy over time? I've definitely had to evolve a bit. I know in the late 90s, we came to the conclusion that the shorter term trend following was the way we practiced it, so the turtle method, nothing very sophisticated. That sort of had run its course. And then we gravitated over to a longer term holding periods, 200-day moving average, 300-day moving average, 100-day breakouts. And um, that was a very good thing to do because not only did it has it worked much better since then, but when we did the research, those longer term parameters had always been just fine. They had performed just as well as the shorter term. And I don't really see any indication that shorter term works better than medium to long. I like the long term and it's worked really well. I think that people evaluate systems in a different way. For instance, as I was saying earlier, if you um, if you didn't make enough money on a certain trade, you know, the, the system overall is very profitable. There's no indication that it's reg regressing. And uh, but, you know, look, I don't I don't like the way it handled wheat, you know, it gave back too much profit. So let's let's figure this out. Let's add something. Let's change something. So I don't really look at it that way. I think um, but I do, I do think over time you have to evaluate to make sure that when you look at all the trades and all the net performance, that you know you want to choose these parameters that allows you to stay in these long-term trends that last for a year or two, and then that's pretty easy to find those parameters. Um, you just don't get out. And so, but the problem is, you also have that same parameter that keeps you in. You don't want it to keep you in too long. So that's what we get paid for is to straddle that um, line of don't get kicked out too quickly. You got to still be long crude, still short the bonds, still short the yen and the pound. But on the other hand, when these things turn around and they will, um, without warning, you don't want to give back too much profit. And so that's the dilemma. And it's really difficult. Yeah, that idea of about the individual line items you're talking about, that's something we talked to Andrew Beer about as well. You know, this whole idea that investors like to pick apart, you know, their portfolio or their strategy, you know, like you said, individual positions aren't all going to be correct. 
But also when people think about like integrating trend following into their portfolio, it's the same thing. You know, tr trend following helps in a portfolio context. And, you know, people want to pick out the bad years of trend following and say, oh, that's that's sort of an eyesore this year. But, you know, and then, then we have years like this year where it's doing exceptionally well. You know, and if you don't keep it in during those other years, you know, it doesn't. So th this idea of thinking about everything in a, in a portfolio context, I think, is really important. Definitely. Um, you know, because like the computer will tell you how to trade and you would think that people would just say, well, thank, fantastic. I'm just going to do what the computer says. But, it, but we have a tendency not to do that because it's just too painful and we want to improve it. You know, let's improve this particular period or this particular year. And then, of course, what happens is when you try to do that, it screws up everything else. And on some of these trades, like I have had, you know, my parameters would just give back way too much profit in natural gas, wheat, um, and a handful of other markets. But then all of a sudden, because I continue to use those parameters on all the other markets, it just allow me to make a fortune somewhere else. So maybe in 90% of the trades, they're not handled optimally, but that pays for itself because on that one trade every now and then, that just makes a killing because I was longer term or something like that. So it really is a psychological difficult game to look at it in those terms because all, all of us, regardless, we're just really very concerned about what's going on right now. We're like children. <laughs> yeah, that's you know? right. How do you think about investors should think about integrating trend following into a portfolio? So, you know, I was listening to you on the on the Med Favor show and you talked about this idea that, you know, people kind of think about, all right, I've got my 60-40 or I've got my long only, you know, let's take 10% and put it in trend following. But you were talking about this idea that maybe trend following should be the core and maybe this other stuff should be the satellite that people put around it. So can you talk about why that is? Oh, for sure. I think so. I think uh, what investors need more, uh, what stock uh, people, people who invest in, in stocks and bonds need more than a small allocation to CTAs and trend following is to have their stocks and bonds trend followed. So I think it's fine to have a little bit of long only, you know, with no stop. I mean, I don't think it's possible for a CTA to have as bad a performance as long equities. You know, it's an 8% return, 50 plus percent drawdown. We just, because we have the trend, because we have all these different markets and asset classes, and we do shorts, it's just almost impossible to find something that's gonna work that poorly. So really you just can't beat over the long run, trend following all these different markets. And with that small losses and, and the trend component, you know, you're long sometimes, and when it switches, you go short and you have your exit, you have your rules, you're systematic, you're disciplined, massive maximum diversification. It's just impossible. You really have to have a period like we've had where stocks just do outrageous things and CTAs suck so bad um, that to where it kind of looks like the trend following is inferior. But I'm pretty confident that we'll revert back to what it was prior to the great financial crisis. And we'll see again all the benefits of, of what CTA trend following can offer. Are there certain asset classes where trend following works better than others? You know, we, we've had like we had Wes Gray on the podcast and he talked about how it works really well on bonds or, you know, it seems like commodities are prone to these super cycles that would work really well with trend following. I mean, does it does it work across the board really well or are there certain asset classes where it works better? Good question. It's um, it's both. Yes, I think that, of course, when you do the back test, 
you will see certain markets and asset classes do better than others. You know, someone's in last place and someone's in first place. It doesn't mean anything for the future. Uh, there is nothing uh, that's saying, aha, now we can trade, I don't know, stocks more or bigger or current com commodities bigger or something. No, it means nothing. Um, you know, we hadn't made money in short interest rates since the 80s. And we hadn't made money in, in the currencies and the commodities in a long, long time. And all of a sudden, uh, the CTAs are the only ones dumb enough to continue beating their head up against the wall in these sectors and doing those trades that hadn't worked in, in a long time. And boom, there are the trends. And of course, of course, we're going to do it. That's how we were trained and raised. And we're going to do it. I think when you do these back tests, there's a math reason behind it as well. When you do these back tests, the most important thing is to have a sufficient sample size of trades. And you want to look at 40 or 50 years worth of data and hundreds of markets and collect, you know, thousands of trades uh, that you can say, okay, I've looked at 5,000 trades. This um, makes money. This is what it has looked like in the past. I'm sure the future will be different. The fundamentals, what's going to happen that's going to generate similar profits will be different. But I feel comfortable going forward with this large sample size. And the only way to get this sample size is to treat all the markets the same way, as if they were the same, as if it didn't matter, as if they didn't have their own personalities, which they kind of probably do. You treat the longs and the shorts the same. So you make all these compromises uh, that most people would find uncomfortable just in order to get this sufficient sample size. And then you're off having to treat everything the same with the same parameters, the longs, the shorts, regardless of the historical performance. I want to go back to the um, just the I, I guess the, the risk mitigation or the stopping out of something because I think you hit on something pretty important. You, you said you know you are in an asset, you have nice gains on them, but you don't want to give up too much of those. You don't want to give you know all those gains back, but you have to balance that with. Um, I guess, uh, not stopping out of something too quickly. Um, so is your methodology a something breaks trend and that's when you sell? Or do you have like a stop loss based on the volatility? Or what are you actually doing to stop out of something? Well, uh, initially, you know, it would be the small limiting the loss to a small amount. And so that stop loss is going to you know, that would be um, a closer price to the entry than the than the trailing stop. So the trailing stop is going to handle the profits and then the small, the stop loss is going to keep those losses small. So once again, it's just going to be a breakout strategy and it's really just going to be, um, you know, it made a new low, it made a hundred day low. Okay, we're out. System one is out. System two makes a um, 125 day low. Okay, system two is out. And then if the market goes back to the highs, well, three and four are still in and we got to get back into one and two. I think the hardest thing for traders and human beings in general is not to get out of profits too quickly. And I don't want to give the wrong impression. Like I'm not really evaluating these trends and evaluating the system on a daily basis. No, I did my research maybe a long, long time ago. I've decided on these parameters, these breakout entries and exits. And I'm stuck. I'm not going to do anything. And so when it does give back too much profit, I'm just going to sit there and say, oh, well, 
I'm following my system. It'll work out better next time. You can't predict these markets. It looks dumb, but I wasn't dumb because I was just following my system. But I determined how I was going to handle all the trades like years ago when I set up the system and I committed to sort of following it. The temptation is to, uh, oh, you know, we got to let's call up the programmers. We need a new rule. We, we gave back too much profit. So instead of the 100 day low, let's add something else that doesn't make it so painful. And of course, you can probably see where that leads you. So I, I kind of uh, sort of understand it more now. You have four, it would be like envisioning four different quadrants or four different boxes. And each one of those boxes is using a different trend following system. And so you get this diversification of different signals, essentially, across you know the various asset classes that you're, you're buying. And to your point, some of them might control to the downside a little bit tighter where others are gonna let it run a little bit more. And ultimately you're saying it kind of balances out because there are multiple different signals. All of them probably work over time, but they don't always work all the time. Yeah, they make about the same amount of money over time. And so you're just trying to diversify your entries and exits. You know, you asked me earlier about trend and how do I define trend? So system one has its own way of defining trend. And system four has a different way of looking at trends. System one can be long, system four can be short. I mean, it's rare, but you know, it can kind of happen. And uh, so we're not really saying like the trend has changed. It's it, system one is saying it has changed, uh, but system two says, no, no, I still like this trade. And, and it's right. You know, if you follow system two's rules, it's gonna make the same amount of money over time as system one, but you have to follow their individual rules. They're just gonna be, uh, different different positions sometimes. And uh, so it's really uh, this probability game and all the games are positive and you win in all of the games, you just kind of win at different times or in different amounts. You had mentioned that you are doing individual stocks within the portfolio. Um, and I, I'm guessing it's the same, you know, it's the same methodology, same trend following system or quadrants, but... Um, is there, is there, I guess it's probably, I know what your answer is going to be, but is there anything else going, like, how do you define, I guess, the universe of, of, of the stocks that you're choosing? Is it just, these are the ones that are exhibiting the, I mean, do you have a set universe, like the largest, I don't know, 500 companies, or are you all cap? And cause there's obviously thousands of stocks. Um, so I'm wondering how you get at the, t the top stocks in the portfolio. Yeah, well, I'll do it the same way that I, uh, handle the currencies and commodities and interest rates. And that is just uh, focus on liquidity, number one. Uh, everything has to be relatively liquid. And then number two, choose markets that are can add a bit of diversification. So with the currencies, commodities, and bonds, especially if you're just doing futures, that's what futures traders, managed futures people do, then those markets are kind of chosen for you by the exchanges. And so you're very happy just to trade 55 commodities and 50 currencies and 30 interest rates and 30 indices. So it's all done for you. There's no anxiety. Oh my God, but if you start venturing over into stock land, you know, uh, why are you doing this? It's so stressful. How do you choose? What if you don't choose the right ones? Well, you know, we don't think about that as it relates to the other sectors. We just trade them all because they're all kind of liquid and they all offer a bit 
uh, maybe just a slight bit of diversification. So in stocks, it is kind of you're starting from a clean slate and you have to figure it out yourself. And so I do, but I do the same process. I look at liquid stocks and I try to look to see which ones can offer more diversification. And it's pretty easy and it's pretty fun to put together a single stock portfolio because there's so many uh, interesting companies doing different things to choose from. So from a qualitative and a quantitative point of view, you just choose you know, 50 of them and just let it go and don't really worry about it too much. Um, and, but you know, no CTA would ever trade the dollar index only, or they wouldn't trade the Goldman Sachs commodity index or um, you know, a bond index. And, but they seem for some reason perfectly happy to trade all these stock indexes, which makes no sense. So um, hopefully one of these days, it'll be a big advantage uh, for CTAs to capture outliers in uh, the stock world like they do in the other markets as well. But I'm not holding my breath, but maybe one of these. Well, uh, yes, the, you know, there's a, that chart that floats around Twitter and it's, I, some, it's based on some academic research that shows like the return uh, and it has it broken out like it's a, you know, it shows a return of like stocks based on deciles or something like that and how all the way to the right is like, you know, huge returns, but in the middle is like a lot of low or negative returns. Basically saying that in the stock market, you know, a lot of the returns come from, you know, the right tail, the Amazons, the Walmarts, like those stocks. So if you can find those stocks using trend and stay in those stocks, which that's not easy to do because a lot of those stocks obviously have large declines, but you know, if you can find those stocks, that's where I think the real, the real winners are in the market. Oh, yeah, that's a very good point. But I think I might disagree with your conclusion there because basically what that, I know the guys who wrote that initially, it was my friends and then other people have written about it as well, about that 4% of the stocks make up all of the gains in the stock market. But yes, but that is buy and hold. So that is not trend following. So with, with trend following, 96% um, of the stocks probably make money. And so I just made that number up because it's because of the 4%. <laughs> Might be a little saying, high. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's almost impossible to find the market that doesn't make money in trend following. If you look at 30 years, right? So, yeah. So um, I asked my friend who wrote that, Eric Crittenden from Standpoint, and when he was working at Blackstar, they wrote this paper that started it all, which was this trend following work in stocks. And so he's, the conclusion was, yes, it does. And so I asked Andrew one day, I said, hey, I mean, uh, Eric, I said, um, hey, have you ever run uh, trend following on stocks that went out of existence? So, uh, you know, you've got the survivorship bias. And I said, hey, I don't even believe in survivorship bias with trend following. So much so that I'm going to ask you, have you ever run trend following your systems on the stocks that are not in the database anymore? And he said, yes. And I said, well, how much money do they make? He said, they made about the same amount of money as the stocks that are still in existence. I'm like, yeah, because this is another problem with 60-40 um, and assets putting, you know, uh, this uh, traditional way of building a portfolio is it's long only. And what can you include? Well, maybe gold, Maybe now Bitcoin, because now Bitcoin has had a run and buy and hold, it makes money. Whereas with trend following, you can put everything in. Not only does it have an, a good impact on diversification and risk, 
but it makes but all of the markets make money. They all will make money if you overlay trend following. It's very rare uh, that that's not the case. And so, yeah, uh, it doesn't matter which stocks you choose, just like it doesn't matter the commodities and the currencies. Trade them all or trade a smaller portfolio. There's pluses and minuses. But the fact of the matter is, they'll almost every single one of them will add profits to the portfolio and act as a diversifier. It's a beautiful world. No, I think that's a good, that's a, I'm glad you sort of went there because I think that's a good distinction, you know, trend following and buy and hold, very different. Um, I uh, wanted to, do you think it's gotten more, let's, let's kind of chunk out the last 20 years with trend following strategies and CTAs. Has it gotten more or less competitive, would you say? from your vantage point? I think more competitive, um, definitely from a business point of view, raising assets. The um, European CTAs came in with a lot better business models and more sophistication and raised the bar and uh, started looking like um, more professional and more institutional worthy. And so uh, I started out in my you know, in the basement of my house with a, a telephone and a quote machine and started managing a lot of money pretty quickly. So that kind of stuff doesn't happen very often now because it's more institutionalized and, um, yeah, less the way it used to be. Um, small, small people have a hard time, you know. Do, do, do you believe that because it's more competitive that there's maybe less of an edge or is it because I would think like, you know, the last like up until, you know, the last couple of years, it was obviously tough to be, you know, a CTA and using trend following. And they had a kind of a tough decade there, like to your point from the financial crisis really through 2020. And so you would think that maybe some of that competitiveness would have gone away. But I mean, maybe not. But what's your view on, you know, if, it's, if it is more competitive, do you think it's bad for returns or no? I don't know. Um, I think. I can't really think uh, of a good answer other than um, I think that the larger firms have different things that they have to do to appease their clients and to gain more assets. And I think uh, to some degree, the smaller traders and people who just want to have fun trend following, it's something you can do with your stocks and your ETFs. I think it uh, sort of less is more. The less you try to add to a more of a traditional trend following, I think the better off you're going to be. So to some degrees, you know, if you don't have the capability to over-optimize, you're not going to over-optimize. I hate to be critical, but I think to some degree there is, you know, quite a bit of, of uh, research being done and research is um, one of my uh, lessons about doing research over the years is we would frequently zig when we should have zagged. I remember changing our systems one year because we had had such a bad year and so we went in and we were like, man, we really got to change them around and change our parameters and change some of our philosophy on how we're going to attack these trends. And so we, pro we were programming the computers and I started going into the uh, guys' offices and I'd ask them like, um, you're ready to implement the new systems yet? And they were like, yeah, we're ready. But let me just tell you that the old systems are now doing a lot better than the new ones. <laughs> so uh, this is, of course, you know, you can't predict and... You try to make these changes, but there's a cost to change because what is the most important thing I said? Don't change. Do the system. Don't. And so whenever you make a change, now you're doing something different. 
you know, if you just did something different discretionary, everyone would tell you that was wrong. Well, I didn't do this trade the right way because I just didn't feel like it. Well, everyone's going to tell you, well, that's wrong. But if you go in and you make changes uh, with your fa fancy computers and software, it's still a change. So there's a cost to that. I'm not saying you don't do it. I'm just saying it could backfire for a while. That is the sign that the strategy is about to turn is when you get their computer programmers and they're trying to change things. Or I like to say, when certain clients start calling me, it's usually that we're, we're much closer to the bottom than we are uh, where we were maybe a few months ago. So, <laughs> Oh, for sure. Yeah. I've had clients call me up all, all throughout my entire career and, and basically tell me, you know, you're never going to make money again. I'm like, okay, we don't get a lot of respect. How do you how do you think about I mean because your strategy is so uncorrelated with the markets and there will be times like any investment strategy that it's going to be trailing a long only equity strategy or maybe some other investment strategy how do you how do you think about managing the behavioral behavioral risk with clients um, and making sure that they can get the most out of like what you're doing for them because the worst thing you want to do is bring on a client, they invest with you, they lose money, and then they, you know, they capitulate and they sell out. They're not there for those winning periods. And so trying to get them there, how do you, how do you go about managing that with your investors? Managing it with your investors and with yourself, you know, it's a highly emotional to, uh, you know, to see redemptions. I mean, it could be the smallest redemption and you're just like, it's just negative feedback that you don't need and you don't want people. I want people to like me. So you can make it very personal, like, oh, they don't like me anymore. They're, they took their money away. And so, um, you know, I, I was started reading a bunch of years ago about the dimensional fund advisors. I'm sure you know DFA. Yeah. And so I was just intrigued by their marketing strategy. I think it was something like uh, we refuse to sell to uh, clients directly. They have to go through an advisor. And the advisor has to come to Texas, I think is where they are, and they have to go through our training program. And it was like, we want them to breathe and live and believe like we do about small cap equities. And uh, we don't want people who are gonna be taking money in and out. And I think they have been incredibly successful with trying to convert people into their worldview on investing. And I think that's exactly what CTA trend followers should do. It may mean you're going to have a small business and you're not going to manage billions of dollars, but it's just fine to manage a couple hundred million and have a small business, you know, a hundred million or 50, it's whatever it is, but have fun and do it with like-minded people who love you and who love what you do. And they believe in it as much as you do. You know, when I was in my twenties, I just read about trend following. And I had no mentors until I went to Chicago. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I understood the basics and I thought this is objective and it is, um, in, in, it, are the big winners gonna pay for the little losers? And I, and I have just been more in love with it every day since I have been doing it for 39 years. And I have a few clients who feel the same way. And so that's how you build a good business and a good lifestyle is hanging out with people who like you and like what you do. And they're out there. There's not that many of them yet. We need more. <laughs> After a couple of years like this year, you'll have more. 
hopefully their timing's good still. <clears throat> um, what about, uh, what's your view on incorporating Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies as, as an asset class? Do you look at that at all or do you kind of just, are you staying away from, from that stuff? No, I liked it. My initial response was positive. I think it's kind of funny that it's the only ETF that is, the SEC says it's only safe to trade, the, to have an ETF as long as it's in the futures markets. I think it's kind of funny. I don't think when it first came out and I started hearing about it, I knew how to set up a Bitcoin account. I still don't. And I think for old guys like me, hedge fund people, when the futures came out, we were really thought this was pretty wonderful. And so I've traded those futures in Bitcoin and Ethereum since they've come out. And we've had a few big trends. Um, so it's been nice. And, and they're the perfect market because they're uncorrelated. And it's uh, just what a systematic person needs, which is um, don't even pretend to understand what's going on. Follow your system. You, have no, you should have no opinion. No one understands these things and what makes them tick and what, what's going to happen with them. So it's the perfect market for me. As long as it's liquid, as long as it delivers some diversification, which it does. And so I, I like them. They're, they're great. I hope, I hope I have a fifth sector, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, crypto. That would be a nice, a nice addition to the portfolio over time. Going back to your original idea that we talked about, about speeding up your signals, like after 2020, do you have to speed them up for Bitcoin? I mean, it, it would seem like, you know, the longer term signals wouldn't work very well with, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum futures, but maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, can you use the same system there or do you need a new system? No, I, I use the same system. I think um, looking at the markets as um, that all the price patterns are sort of governed by human beings and it's the it's humans interacting with these markets. It's not the market itself, but it's the way people are dealing with markets with hope, fear, and greed, not wanting to take small losses, not wanting to let profits run, uh, trying to f optimize and fine tune. I think it's perfectly fine. Um, and like I said, my strategy is more long-term, but look, you know, there's two parts to these, at least two parts to these trends. Uh, yes, of course, the one part is the crashes. And so Bitcoin and has had some crashes, let's say, so you didn't, you gave back a lot of profit. But in Bitcoin and in a lot of these markets, most of these markets, they're so choppy and you need to have what we call loose pants where a lot of scenarios can fit underneath your parameters and not continually uh, get you, you know, out and have to get back in. So I think that it is, you must, that's your first thing that you must accomplish is having parameters that don't uh, keep you in a, in a, era where not like the 70s when it was smoother trends, they're very choppy and they're very volatile and everyone gets overly optimistic and pessimistic only to see the market go right back to new highs within a few weeks. And so it plays havoc with having to uh, rely upon that same parameter to get you out of the trade when the trend really does turn. Um, but once again, that's the, what's the world we live in now. Just um, two more questions and, and then um, we'll let you go. This has been great. But if, if, if um, most of the people that watch our podcast, I would consider them more advanced, um, active investors or professionals. But for the more advanced DIY active investor or trader, what resource or resources would you recommend someone go to to learn about trend following? Oh, wow. 
I mean, think about it. I mean, uh, I aced that test and there was no internet around. What was I reading? <laughs> you know, the internet is just so full of uh, the turtle systems, the basic money management and how that, what we were taught. So many great people on Twitter, uh, Twitter spaces. I run a Twitter spaces every Friday morning at eight o'clock. Podcasts, Top Traders Unplugged. So much good trend following information out there uh, in the podcasting and um, on the internet in in the media, Andrew uh, Beer and so much going on, especially this year, but it's just overwhelming uh, how much information is out there for people, honestly, yeah. So we like to ask our guests sort of the, the, a standard closing question. And that is if you could teach one lesson or impart one piece of wisdom to your average investor based on your experience in the markets, what would that be? Well, there's so many I could say, um, I did tweet a quote from Soros today, and, and it's one that I have believed in for many, many years, and that is, um, you know, don't be skeptical. Don't be skeptical. Um, buy the breakout and look and get in gear with the trend and don't be afraid to add markets that don't make sense. I mean, I was so negative on the iPhone when it first came out. This is not going to be anything. And how dumb is that? You should have this uh, attitude of a child and believe that it could be something you never know. Um, it really is just a twist on you're going to have uh, a bunch of outlier trades that could make you a thousand or five thousand percent, and then everything else will be pretty much a break even or a loss. But just you know, uh, attack your investments and in and your life in that particular way that you want to be on board with uh, crazy things that probably won't happen. But every now and then, Bitcoin comes along, Apple comes along and the great things about life, the technology comes along and just embrace it, make a small bet on it and follow the trend and don't be too hesitant to get out of that trend and hold on. But don't overanalyze. Um, even the best people cannot predict uh, what's going to happen in these markets. And the best way to attack the markets is through a systematic rules based approach that basically says, I have no idea. I'm just going with the trend. Thank you very much, Jerry. This has been, I think, educational, fun, and I personally like your philosophy and outlook when it comes to investing. So we appreciate you spending time with us and joining us. If people want to um, learn more about Chesapeake, follow you on Twitter, maybe pop into your Twitter spaces. Well, if they follow you on Twitter, they can just, they'll get to notice that you're in Twitter spaces. So, but I mean, where can they go to learn more about you? ChesapeakeCapital.com and RJ Parker, JR. 09 on Twitter. We'll put a link to your Twitter handle in there. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. This has been great. Thank you. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.